0: Hi everyone, I'm Gary Null, and this is the Progressive Commentary Hour. Today, our theme is The Weaponization of Words in the New Dystopian America. And my guest is Danny Katz, that's D-A-N-I-K-A-T-Z, and she is here to talk about this subject. A little bit about Danny's background. Danny is a communications consultant and the creator of quantum languaging, a method to deconstruct the ways words and language shape human experience. She established her reputation as one of Los Angeles' edgier literary figures having published widely for LA Weekly, Los Angeles Times, Vice, Teen Vogue, Santa Fe Reporter, Reality Sandwich, and many others. She was lead researcher and writer for the highly censored documentary, Plandemic, Indoctrination. Her primary research is investigating the energetic frequency of words and how language programs us and our perception of the world Danny is the author of several books, including Word Up, Little Languaging Hacks for Big Change. Her most recent release is The Language of Betterarchy. Danny's new program on Progressive Radio Network, Word Up, explores the many ways language programs our thinking, our culture, and our world, and how we can transform ourselves and society through language. In addition to cultural and political criticism, Danny deconstructs cultural events and social movements, conspiracy theories and false propaganda and misleading language behind groupthink. You can hear Danny's new program, Word Up, every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN. Nice to have you with us today, Danny.
1: Hi, Gary. Thank you so much for that beautiful introduction and thanks for having me on the show.
0: I'd like to hear your analysis of the language and anger-filled dialogue we are witnessing across the nation with respect to these labels of right and left, liberal and conservative, um, have and have-nots, uh, predator and prey, and especially in the context of the cultural associations people charge these terms with. Oddly, there is much to be said about how Washington has become a system not dissimilar to the old Soviet Union, in my opinion, except rather than the language of socialism and a distortion of Marxist economic theories, we use the language of faux-democracy. When we look at the European Union and what it has become, the European Commission, led by Ursula von der Leyen, it's a central Soviet entity, and the people are not recognizing the strong parallels So when you listen to the mainstream media, or even to the independent media that embraces either a strong liberal or right ideology, what are you hearing in their language and rhetoric, and what are the catch points that indicate their rationale and arguments are amiss? The forum is yours.
1: Oh, thank you. Well, I think the key clue that their efforts are amiss is that um, they're attempting to dehumanize uh, those who oppose their agendas. So we can see endemic to the language that they're using this demonization um this removal of our fundamental shared humanity as they attempt to push the illusion of our separation so it's no longer just another human being who prefers to vote for the other party now it's a trumper or a libtard like they're using these labels to put people in cages forged of stereotypes bigotry and homogenized thinking, which, you know, none of those things are true, we're all unique individuals. Um, But we can see in the rhetoric, this like disdain for those who think differently. And that feels more new in the political discourse. Um, We've also seen an uptick in editorialization, in pushing blatant lies. I know you're seeing this as much as I am. And, you know, I think we can definitely point to Obama and the Smith Modernization Act, which made it legal for the U.S. government to propagandize its own people. And I always wonder, like, what was the rationale behind that? Like, was there any sort of forward-facing spin put on that that would make it seem like that was a good idea? I know that that was kind of shoved into another bill with, like, thousands of points. But I think um, it's this kind of... The idea that those who think differently are less than us, right, are not worthy of empathy or respect, they're stupid or they're white supremacists, right? And so because we've sunk to this level of ad hominem, we're no longer discussing ideas um, with any intellectual rigor, nor with any basic respect for each other's shared humanity. So I think the biggest danger is um, the powers that were, as I call them, because I will not legitimize their false power in the present moment, nor will I seed the future with more of it. But I think one of the biggest problems we're facing is um, the social engineers attempt to convince us that we are not all operating with shared humanity and we're not all deserving of respect and empathy.
0: I appreciate your insights. Thank you. Back in 2008, when the uh, big economic crisis occurred, something unique occurred in the public mindset. First it was Bush, and then it was Obama who took on TARP and the bailout. But instead of pulling back and saying, how can we stop suffering of the average person, they used a program and then languaged it, and weaponized it, that we had to bail out the banks. We had to bail out corporate America, like General Motors and and General Electric, and AEG, the great big insurance company. But at no point would we bail out small businesses. We would not help a single individual who was going through a crisis because of a lost job. All the people that lost their jobs in one day, if you remember, all those people storming out of, of the Wall Street firm that had just been closed down and its share dropped from $60 to $2 a share. And at no time over the next 10 years where we had quantitative easing and gave out upwards of around $26 trillion did we give a penny to the average person. But not a single person within the mainstream media, including within the business media, used terms like, This is unfair, or why can't we help average people? Why can't we put a moratorium on home foreclosures? Why can't we, we didn't do the, why can't we help people? It was why we have to help the most powerful people in the world who made the original mistakes. So the people who made the mistakes were not held accountable, and therefore our language changed. And if you went to criticize one of these people, then you were attacked. And again, the media would all use the same terms to attack a person that was looking at inequality and lack of justice and how our society was showing it like a tsunami hit. They were the tsunami. Then they expect us to pay for their mistakes. And they weaponized the language. So if you decided like a Michael Hudson, Professor Hudson, a great economist, or Rabini, another economist, to say this is not right, then you you are also attacked. And we're using the same ways today. If you attack the way COVID was handled, you're attacked. If you attack the way that we're supporting uh, Ukraine, you're attacked. And now if you make one criticism against uh, Israel, uh, you're attacked, all using the same language. And we just don't seem to realize how we're all being played. Could you address this, please?
1: Yes, I see it from a couple angles, so I do see this violent um, conflict laden languaging gaining more and more traction, and I see us becoming desensitized as more and more violent um, and aggressive languaging takes a stronghold in the lexicon, and I think that that definitely contributes to how we wield words as weapons against one another. So take, for example, Um, you know, if I say, Gary, how'd you do on your show today? And you said, oh, I killed it. Right. So this word killed has which, you know, as we know, actually connotes murder has now come to also mean I did a good job. And we see this being proliferated through like pop culture. And I think what it does is it desensitizes us to the harm that our words actually cause. And then I also see this in terms of what you were saying about, you know, bailing out the larger entities who are, in fact, responsible for the very issues that we're facing instead of the average person. We saw this during lockdowns when the mom and pop businesses had to be shut down. And I, you know, I'm making quote marks with my fingers when I say had because we all could have very simply said no and shut this down but we see this attack on the individuals and it's odd to me when the individuals don't see it. We also see it in the climate change narrative, right? No one's talking about, well, why are we still manufacturing single-use plastics? Why are these giant factories allowed to run given the emissions that they're putting out? Um, Instead, it's this attack on individual humans. It seems so obvious for those of us who see the ridiculousness of this, um but it's very odd to me those who are going along with it those who think that it's a great idea that we're all locked down in 15-minute cities you know no longer allowed to have gas ovens b- while nestle runs unchecked um you know churning out their plastic water and you know stealing of uh, developing nations water rights and all of this so <laughs> It, it, it's so out of balance. And um, I'm very excited for the individual people to recognize how much power we have, because the sooner that we come together and say no to what they're proposing, the sooner we'll flip this.
0: I'll show you how powerful words can be. Back in 1974, one of New York's leading gay physicians, Dr. Stephen Caeza, called me. We had about a four-hour meeting. He said, Gary, I'm seeing symptoms in my patients that I've never... and he had almost 100% gay patients and of those 100%, about 90% were male, the others were female. He said, I'm seeing a condition I've never seen before in my practice. He had been in practice about 20 years at that time. He said, I'm not aware of uh, how to deal with the lifestyle modifications, nutrition, all that. Could you do that and help me out? And I said, sure. So I helped him out. Well, what I found was that of all the people over the last the next ten years, by changing lifestyle, helping them change bad habits to healthier habits, uh, and they all got better. And then when age came along, I said, well, what are we dealing with? We're dealing with immune systems that are compromised. How can we rebuild an immune system? And that's part of my specialization and my training with the doctorate and human nutrition and public health science, and was senior research fellow for 36 years at the Institute of Applied Biology and Aging Medicine. So I said, why don't we just work on an effective immune system make it strong? And I did. And over the next 15 years, 2,000 advanced AIDS patients, every single one of them was alive. Not a single patient died. But if those 18 went on an advanced protocol, intravenous vitamin C drips up to 200,000 milligrams, and ozone and herbal therapies, cleansing, detoxification, energy work, uh, psychological work. Albert Ellis Center in New York was in the, our office. I had a medical staff of 22. And all, the, mind you, these are all medical doctors. They can use any therapy they want. and But not one drug was used in 15 years, all natural. And everything came from the library of medicine. We reversed 18 individuals' complete AIDS state meaning we took him from HIV positive, negative, from sick and dying with ARC and Kaposi's sarcoma, pneumocystis, to total health. And for that, Anthony Fauci, the same Anthony Fauci that has controlled the COVID uh, war, um, went after and supported AZT and DDI and DDC and, and produce inhibitors. But AZT was the big one. And absolutely shut down any discussion anywhere in the scientific or lay community on AIDS and an alternative approach to it. As a result of that, I had to hold a press conference and show all these people who had their complete AIDS reversed with their doc errors, doctors, and their medical records, and not a single member of the media came, not one I sent out 7,000 invitations to the AIDS organizations, the AIDS foundations. Not one attended. Instead, everyone who wanted to support a natural and non-toxic approach to AIDS was called an AIDS denier. There's your words. They weaponized it. And I'm thinking, that's kind of odd. And uh, I would have a seven nights a week, an AIDS support group in my office, about 40 people, and here were people who had tried AZT, got sick or uh, almost died, gave it up. Now we're going on a more natural approach and getting better. And they were all within the gay community. And the gay community was split. Half was interested in this. The other half was going with, quote, put time on your side. Another use of words, use AZT. Put time on your side, use AZT. And then they had the power, they were backed by Big Pharma. Now I give you this extended. Uh, overview, because from that day till now, no one has been allowed to say a single thing about AIDS except those who control the dialogue, who control the word, control the language. And if you dare say anything that might challenge Anthony Fauci, Robert Gallo, and what they did with a, a protocol that killed at least three hundred thousand people with AZT, you will be your your attack, your gaslit. You're destroyed and they'll if you're a writer, they'll send to every publisher in America uh, notes and emails of not to publish your work, magazines, articles, books. If you're at a lecture agency, they'll they'll destroy your reputation lecture agency. They literally are destroying reputations much like they did with everyone that showed up in pandemic. There is a whole campaign against every one of those experts. Dr. Peter McCullough. Dr. Malone, Dr. Cole, everyone who came out showing legitimate, honest challenges to COVID were attacked the same way that any honest, legitimate dialogue and and approach to AIDS. Yet the same organizations, Big Pharma, the same group behind Big Pharma that owned the interests in their company, um, BlackRock, Vanguard, etc., the same media voices all working in harmony against the truth, against uh, anyone who would challenge their language, their use of words. I just want you to know that because that's also very important to me, how whole groups of people, Orthodox in every respect, but wanting to see the truth, are now demonized because of the attack against them and the weaponization of words used. Your thoughts on this, please.
1: I'm curious to know, Gary, were they using the actual phrase AIDS denier? And if they were, what year was that?
0: Well, they've been using that since uh, 1987 when I had my press conference and I had 100 people with their doctors and medical records showing they had reversed or improved AIDS. And my 18 completely reversed the first The first people ever cured of AIDS in the world were my 18 patients that I work with personally on a long protocol. It took 16 months, and we filmed it all. They had their blood chemistries. There was no doubt scientifically or medically this had happened, but they had to keep this from being known because once you open that door, that truth comes out. In the law, you never ask a person on the stand a question you don't know the answer to because then you allow that door to come back at you. And so every single media was shut down, including the number one gay publication in America, the New York Native, and Charles Ortlieb and Nita Ostrom, outstanding group of people, all gay, talking about gay issues, number one gay publication, and they put them out of business because of the attacks using the words "AIDS deniers." If you look up, you if you look up on any of the publications, you'll see, like Wikipedia, you'll see, if you champion a natural or more approach to AIDS, you're called an AIDS denier. And they lie about everything and you can't change it. They control social media. They control the platforms. We know that now because of congressional testimony. So then they weaponize the words. They block you through algorithms. They promote their own orthodox, in the loop, scientists or journalists or medical doctors. So it's the war is phenomenally complicated for the average person, but for those of us on the ground every day, uh, it's simple. The truth is denied constantly.
1: It is indeed. And then they, they create these ridiculous, clunky phrases like AIDS denier as a means of shutting the, down those who are simply inquiring as to what is going on, questioning, offering different perspectives. I I, I talk... Um, in my new book I do talk about the tacking of the er onto positions um perspectives allegiances as a means of taking an idea and trying to make it an identity construct again as a means of dehumanizing and discrediting those who dare question. So you know when I talked about earlier how this this separation consciousness, right? This idea that because we think differently, because we have different ideas about how to go about, you know, taking care of our families, of our world, that we're no longer sharing a humanity, you see this in the tacking of the ER onto a belief, because that right there takes a human being who's questioning the AIDS narrative and shoves him in this cage called AIDS denier, And then these cages come along with their own implications oh aids deniers are stupid are anti-science are homophobic like whatever they are so it's this shorthand way that the social engineers get us to divide and and enslave ourselves it's really odd to me that anthony fauci is not in prison with everything we know about him and that someone in that position who is holding multiple patents on these medications that, you know, we we know the downsides of AZT, like like that story has been well reported on. Um, As well, he's the architect of PEPFAR, which has millions and billions of missing dollars unaccounted for and for some reason is like beyond government oversight. So the fact that we still have these people or beings because i'm not even sure if they're people because it's odd to me that people would want to kill and harm their own kind but the fact that he's not in prison and yet still holding the same office that he abused in the 80s is beyond me
0: okay let me follow up on what you just said anthony fauci is not in jail nor will he go to jail because anthony fauci was not the creator of the problem he was the facilitator of it. This had to be a joint effort. I'll give you an example. They now have found the SARS-2 fingerprint in a 2018 proposal, a synthetic assembly method, posited in, in a 2022 paper found in diffuse a draft. And... Uh, and what I, if you're a layperson not quite understanding what I'm saying, I'm saying that U.S. scientists proposed to make viruses with unique features of SARS-2 COVID in Wuhan lab. I'm going to quote you uh, the following passage that goes to the heart of the matter. Quote, the documents reveal for the first time that a virologist working with the Wuhan lab planned to engineer spike, a new spike proteins, in contrast with the collaborators' public work to insert whole spike proteins into viral backbones. Language in the proposal indicates this work may have involved unpublished viruses generated, generating unpublished engineering spike proteins. This American biologist, University of North Carolina Professor Ralph Barrick was set to engineer 20 or more chimeric SARS-related viral spike proteins per year Per year of the proposal and two to, f- to five full-length engineered SARS-related viruses. Documents previously reported by the U.S. Right to Know show that some of these experimentations could secretly occur in Wuhan at a lower biosafety level Than specified in the grant, apparently to save cost. The proposal by Professor Beric to perform these uh, SARS-related viruses will come as no surprise to those who are familiar with his seminal papers on creating chimeric SARS-related viruses using gain-of-function procedures. Now, in quote, Who owned the patent on the SARS vaccine? before anyone knew it. And who told us this? Well, Dr. David Martin did, the world's leading authority on on, uh, patents and who controls them. That person was a scientist, Chinese scientist, virologist, working at the Wuhan lab. He patented it before there was an announcement that that we had a pandemic. So how in the world do you have a cure for a disease, a purported cure for a disease before you even have a disease. Therefore, how did this happen? How did this funding get done? There was a moratorium, uh, it, by the way, a lot of people have this wrong. They say, you know, there, there was a moratorium against doing any gain-of-function research. That's not true. There was a moratorium on funding through the U.S. Uh, Department of Health and Human Services gain-of-function research under Obama. So therefore, Anthony Fauci gave money to uh, the top person that he gave money to, and uh, Peter Desick, who then took it down to Ralph Barrick, who then took it to Wuhan, who then took it to a lesser lab, where there were more than 100 PhD virologists from the Chinese Department of Defense that was doing the work. He then created the virus, then he created the vaccine, he patented that in his name, and the Wuhan lab, and then he jumped off the building and committed suicide. Why? We don't know. All before anyone knew that there was a virus or an outbreak. All that was done by Anthony Fauci. And we have that now from Freedom of Information Act documents and the conversations he was having. So, did he fund the creation of it? Yes. Were there hundreds of other laboratories around the United States and the world um, not just controlled by the United States, but other countries doing gain of function research. And gain of function research is biological weapon research. Did you ever see the movie um, Apocalypse Now?
1: I did. I love that movie. I've probably seen it a dozen times.
0: Then you remember the scene where Charlie Sheen is, uh, uh, not Charlie Sheen, um, um, his father, uh, the Chief. other Sheen. Yeah is saying that he had to go get this colonel, and instead of using the word kill him, he used the word uh, execute with extreme uh, extreme prejudice. So they changed the word kill to execute with extreme prejudice, which meant assassinating. So gain of function is merely the same thing. It is weaponization. And now, just two weeks ago, the Chinese Wuhan lab announce that they have created a new virus that is 100% fatal, very fast. And yet, instead of being challenged, instead of telling them to destroy that, all across the world now, everyone is going to do a virus that's equally deadly. These are weaponized viruses, and what do we expect the outcome to be? And yet, they'll defend that. Now, in your own work, now I'll go back to your work for a moment, Uh, because I I find some of the stuff you've done really contributes to our discussion here. Look at how they've taken you and others who were willing to use good, honestly independent science and good, honest medical treatment, and suddenly ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, zinc, vitamin D3, vitamin A, Intravenous vitamin C, all of and quercet, all of which stopped the coronavirus dead in its tracks. In fact, the two very first studies ever done on this were done at the Wuhan lab with twenty-four thousand milligrams of intravenous vitamin C, and it stopped every single patient that had COVID over it. And then we have all these thousands and thousands of patients being treated in, in clinics where their orthodox doctors pro vaccines but they were stopping the virus because they were using these. What happened was exactly what you're discussing. First of all, they separated. The separation and the separation was the first level of dysfunction. Separate those who were finding the truth, speaking the truth, frontline doctors, and make them seem as if they're in conflict. Use the word conflict. They're in conflict. They're an outlier. They're, They're not a legitimate doctor or scientist. And then, the victimhood—they're putting their patients at risk of dying because they're not using—they're uh, not using remdesivir, they're not getting intubated. So now you're telling people that doctor is separating himself in some irresponsible information he's giving the patient. So he's in conflict with good, honest practices. Let's identify him. Identify the enemy, and using that word identity to identify him, and then he's a misinformation person. He's spreading disinformation. And that means if you get into his practice, if you listen to him, you're going to be limited in living. You might die. And then put fear, and then make that person's status a low status, a non-credible status, and then put up to a highest status, Howard Stern and Rachel Maddow, and Jimmy Kimball. Didn't Jimmy Kimball say that two people show up at the hospital with a heart attack, the person that was vaccinated, bring them on and the other one, uh, rest in peace, meaning you should die? And as you said, correctly so, all small business in America, we were told, nope, you put everything at risk, unless you're an expensive restaurant, then you can wear a mask outside, you get in, you can take off your mask, the staff has to wear a mask, the chef and the servers, and Mr. D., you don't have to for that hour you're there. But then you got to put your mask on again because right after you've eaten that meal, because all viruses stop, they stop in the air, they're frozen. Now, you can go into a liquor store because there's no viruses in the liquor store. and You can go into Walmart and Whole, and Whole Foods, and and, uh, and uh, you're good there. Costco, you're good there, no viruses. But don't go into a small health food store. The insanity... We lost our collective consciousness because we were thinking in a collective consciousness. We lost the capacity for our own insightful way of looking at a problem and its solutions. In no small measure, the same words used over and over again, it's horse, horse warmer, it's horse dewarmer. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, Danny, I wrote the two most definitive articles showing hundreds and hundreds of studies, the scientists, the number of scientists, the institutions, the number of peer-reviewed papers published on Ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and how they would save lives, 90% of lives saved. The mainstream media never touched it. Hence, no one in the platforms would allow that information to be... It was disinformation taken off YouTube. And yet, every single thing I've written, and I've written a lot, over a thousand articles, 700 original investigative reports. Not a word, has had to be corrected. And just, this is the world we live in. Your thoughts, please. I'm sorry I went on a little longer there. But...
1: No, no problem. I mean, we face something similar with pandemic indoctrination. I mean, that was, uh, Mickey was really a stickler about having multiple sources to back up every single allegation that went into that film. And I stand by every word, but that, you know, the entire documentary has been deemed disinformation, fake news, and there's, you know, they have no legs to stand on, on any of the individual points. There's nothing that we've gotten wrong, but they do have this stronghold on the media And they've weaponized these words like misinformation, disinformation, which really at this point just mean facts that run counter to the medical industrial complexes, dark agendas. Um, And I think, you know, as you're saying, it's like I've noticed that wellness, uh, taking personal responsibility for health, that is the gateway drug or the, the gateway experience that starts to wake people up to how many of these systems are working against our best interests? And when I looked, you know, in my own life, of like, well, which of my friends bought into the sham and which ones didn't? And it was my friends who have clean diets, who aren't aren't addicted to the Western medical paradigm, who were able to see clearly. You also mentioned fear, so fear is a, a massive weapon that the social engineers use. It's an entire chapter in my new book because fear is a way to shut down the critical thinking capacities. When our bodies are flooded with fear hormones, we can't access all of the possibilities that are available when our minds are not clouded by fear. So, I mean, it's classic Hegelian dialectic. Of course they have the interventions in place years, decades before they launch the virus the you know the internet hack like whatever the next false flag is going to be that's going to persuade the public to beg daddy government for intervention x regardless of how many civil liter- civil liberties it tramples or how detrimental it is to our actual physical mental emotional well-being um i found a document from the late 90s coming out of the Santa Fe Institute that was talking about creating a novel coronavirus to push their agendas forward. So, you know, it's not like the Wuhan lab or Ralph Barrett are working independently, right? There's tons of money in many organizations And many, many decades, if not centuries of planning that go into these larger agendas and these larger psyops that we see, you know, escalating right now because they're, you know, we're kind of barreling towards their final plan, which is this one world government. Um, But I think the other piece is the consistent attacks on our self-esteem and our sense of self that have been going on for generations. That have people completely disconnected from their own inner authority, their agency, their intuition, right? Like the, th- those parts of us that are saying, "Hey, something isn't right. Maybe it's not right for me to avail myself to an experimental gene modifying injection," you know. But because of this, you know, very long range attack on our self esteem, our confidence. Um, We have a populace that is largely dependent on their government, their politicians, their celebrities, their media influencers, telling them what to do to make their decisions. So I think, you know, it's kind of a double whammy. One, of course, there's the propaganda and indoctrination coming out of our mainstream media and these larger systems, but there's also um, the longer, more insidious attack on our self-esteem and our connection to our own agency that makes us vulnerable to these kinds of tricks, these lies, this persuasion. Um, so for those of us who are focusing on solutions, I think it's twofold. It's, of course, you know, taking back the media, of course, clearing out all these systems of the bad apples that comprise them, which is most of them, but it's also restoring our own sense of our internal authority. Um, and and learning to rely on ourselves. You know, we, we see this being exacerbated over the past 20 years of, you know, common core curriculum and these ideas that like, kids can't lose it tag because that's gonna hurt their feelings. So now we have these very, very thin skinned people who are set to inherit the planet, but don't really have the skills or the character necessary to be able to handle life on a fundamentally unfair planet. So we have a lot of opportunities (laughs) to change things, you know, for those of us with eyes to see.
0: I appreciate that insight. Thank you, Danny. My final question would be to the effect of the United States and its closest allies in the United Kingdom, Europe, and Canada have been entering war economies. We hear endless talk about future wars and conflicts, especially against China, Russia, Iran and a new wave of Islamophobia, and increasingly other non-Western nations that are withdrawing their admiration towards the United States and the West and realigning themselves with a new emerging multipolar world that values diversity rather than hegemonic monopoly by a single global power. Have you investigated this language of conflict and identification with ideologies that are proclaimed as absolutes with no room for nuance, and what the what role does the use and manipulation of fear, as you just mentioned, play in this war of ideological tribes? And just finally, as a footnote to all this, when you watch so-called liberal media and then the Sean Hannity's Laura Ingraham on conservative media, neither one seems to be concerned about what the value of a Palestinian's child and baby and young person or woman's life is, or an innocent Palestinian Christian who wants to live in peace, who is against Hamas, doesn't want terror. And yet, not a single person have I heard say that all lives matter. Once again, we capture a dialogue, we then weaponize it, we then homogenize it so that everyone is supposed to say the same thing, and indeed the media will say something, a hundred different media will give use the exact same statements when they're told, this is the approach you take to control the narrative. And the power is in controlling the narrative. Social media controls the narrative. In fact, Wikipedia in particular, who I, I've written 74 articles to walk away from Wikipedia, and, and each article is different, I, the, you know, uh, Medical McCarthyism on Wikipedia, how uh, Wikipedia so-called experts are really skeptics. They believe in scientism rather than honest science. But if you mentioned, hey, what about chiropractic, and acupuncture, and Chinese medicine, energy medicine, homeopathy, naturopathy, healthy vegan diet, they're against all that, and they say it's all quackery but then their whole group everywhere uses the same words. Oh, that's, that's quackery, that's pseudoscience, that's not real. And in turn, anyone who opposes the war machine, opposes the word you just used, which is a New World Order, which was first stated by George Bush Sr. at the United Nations many decades ago, and, and it's thousand, thousand Light Streams. Now we see that behind it all is the World Economic Forum, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Bilderberg Group, and uh, the World Health Organization, the United Nations. They're all interconnected, and we haven't been able to see this because we've been so monotheistic in our approach to life single minded. What's in front of us? I don't want to look at the sides. Much like a racehorse that has blinders on either side so it doesn't get distracted. Can you make sense of this?
1: Oh, can I make sense of it? I mean, it's a giant I hate to use the word conspiracy because it's so overused, but you know, the term fake news, that that popped up around the same time that we got Wikipedia. Wikipedia, if you look if you look into it, it's run by the Wikimedia organization. And you look at the donors to the Wikimedia organization and and you realize that there's nothing independent or or kind of like this folksy user-maintained fiction around Wikipedia. I believe it was um, the woman who's been named uh, the new president of NPR came out of Wikimedia, also CFR, right? Council on Foreign Relations. That's correct. So you look at the stronghold that these really nefarious entities have on the media To push their, you know, it's. I see it as multiple agendas agendas coinciding. There's a genocidal agenda, but there's also a techno-fascist enslavement agenda. Um, But unfortunately, people have been so brainwashed by, you know, I think it's not just, you know, of course it's the propaganda and you know this, you know, subtle but consistent attacks on our own self-esteem and agency, but also this ridiculous celebrity culture where like, who cares what Jimmy Kimmel has to say? Who is this person that we've put on this pedestal that it's okay for him to demonize, you know, what I would estimate is more than half of the population. Um, you know, it, it, it's really like this, All of these entities that seem to be separate are really working on behalf of this larger, you know, Charlie Robinson calls it the octopus of global control. But one of the things that I, you know, I think it's very important these days that we learn to do our own due diligence, to do our own research, to start to follow the money. Um, You know, I teach a homeschool propaganda class that I, I just digitized and put out this week but you know, I would lead my students through live internet searches. I would share my screen and, and take them to Wikipedia and say, okay, see this statement. Now look at this little number in the corner. You click that number, that's the source. Then I would show them, okay, now you go to the source and you click about to look at who funds it. And that's when you see Open Society, Bill and Melinda Gates. Um, you'll see the Annenberg, you'll see Uh, The Clinton Foundation, you know, you'll see you start to see the same entities you start to get a bigger picture And I think it is so important for us to start to learn the simple phrase. I don't know You know, you look at what's going on um, Israel-Palestine I've been questioning the US relationship to Israel for years publicly like why am I not allowed to criticize Israel if I'm trying to get this grant from the government. That doesn't really make sense if we're living, allegedly, in a constitutional republic. And what is our relationship to Israel? Why are so many of our elected leaders, uh, why do they have dual citizenship with Israel? And what is that about? Um, So it's, you know, I I do think the upside to what's going on, especially, you know, the Israel-Palestine thing, I haven't been there, so I can only, speak to what i've heard and i've researched and it seems that the palestinians are getting an extremely raw deal um but i think the upside to this is it's uh it's jostling the allegiances right because we've seen so much corruption um so many lies coming out of the left primarily right i'm not giving the right a pass these parties are an illusion but they've overplayed their hand because that's also the faction that's criticizing our allegiance to Israel. So they might've just you know, created a bigger problem for themselves. I'm certainly hoping. Um, you mentioned that we can't say all lives matter. It's crazy that these days to say all lives matter puts us in the camp of white supremacy given how successful the propaganda campaign has been. My approach these days when I'm speaking to people on the ground, because I really think that's where our hope is. Like, of course, I'm grateful to come on to this program. I'm grateful to, you know, do the, the podcasts that I do, put out the books that I have. But even for people who don't have large platforms or platforms, period, there is a lot of power in our day to day, moment to moment interactions on the ground in our own communities. And what I've started to do is when I'm talking to people who are using dehumanizing languaging when talking about people who believe differently, I just poke at their language. I'm not poking at their belief structures. I'm just saying, you know, what is a Trumper? What does that mean? And when when they unpack that for me, I simply say, you know, that really hurts my heart to hear you dehumanize half of the population and to use such bigoted stereotypes when describing them. And I'm amazed that that will snap people out of it. Um, Again, like, I don't think we're going to make any headway fighting over, you know, which of our pundits we believe. But I think when we take it down a notch just to to our fundamental humanity and how we're having these conversations, I found that that um, I'm having some success in snapping people out of their indoctrination.
0: And good for you. Your book, uh, your first book certainly showed that. And you... You've opened yourself up to looking at the world for what it is, and that's the first step in any form of of change. I believe that three things happen when we're at this unique juncture. Either we adapt to the circumstances that we are living with now and try to make the best of it, or we maladapt by fear, by intimidation, by being disempowered, by feeling that we're not smart enough, we didn't go to Harvard or Yale or Princeton if we did and we're thinking differently then how do we get into those institutions? And then we're not going to be taken seriously. Like Linus Pauling was a personal friend of mine. He won two unshared Nobel Prizes. He would come over when he was in New York at night and we would in my laboratory and we would sit and we would talk about issues. And I never will forget, he said, You know, Gary, doctor Hugh and Cameron and I uh, did an experiment in at the Vale of Leven Hospital in Scotland. We took a group of patients who were terminally ill, and we gave them ten thousand milligrams of vitamin C per day by mouth, and we had extended their lifespan by such and such. The Mayo Clinic comes along, and they give ten. They give the same number of patients ten thousand milligrams a day, and they said there's no difference. It didn't extend their lifespan. Therefore, negating our work. And then I looked at their protocol, and they used people who had chemotherapy. And if you have chemotherapy, you destroy the liver. Now, they could not have done that unintentionally, he said. And so, therefore, their intent was to destroy that. And why? What would be the purpose? And I said, simple because if suddenly all the oncologists had to use vitamin C as one of their protocols for terminal cancer instead of the drugs that are always given at the end of life, which are, quote, experimental drugs, and none of them have ever worked, and 50% of all cancer deaths are shown to be due to the treatment itself, radiation and chemotherapy, both are highly carcinogenic and both immunosuppressive, then they can allow something that they cannot control, patent, and profit from. Now, even though their intent may be to save a life, it's do they profit and get credit for the intent. I so look at it like this, Linus. Every year in the United States, from just cancer, you have about 500,000 deaths. It's more or it's less, but about that. And I'm only talking about cancer. And we know that the treatment itself will cause half of those deaths. So let's just say that the people who control 100% of the protocol and the therapy the oncologist, the radiologist, the surgeons, that these people were to say, we're going to be responsible. If something's not working, we're going to change. Then let's go back 20 years. Do the math. If you have 500,000 people dying per year of a disease that you are the most qualified to deal with, and you go back 10 years, all right, then you have 5 million dead people. 5 million dead people. Now go back another 10 years. Now you're at 10 million, 20 million. So, within our lifetimes, since you've become a professional journalist, an investigative journalist, and an ethicist in your journalism, 20 million Americans have died from a disease that they have not fundamentally changed their approach and have not recognized at all alternative approaches, even though they're on PubMed, the National Library of Medicine, a lot of other therapies yet they will not surrender the idea that they should be rewarded. So if you have cancer and you should survive for five years, they take 100% of the credit. If you get a flu vaccine, and you may be a marathon runner, you may be a vegan, you may be living in Florida or California getting a lot of sunlight and vitamin D, you may be meditating, not doing drugs or alcohol and smoking, you'll get no credit for preventing the uh, flu, The vaccine makers will take 100% of the credit for you not getting the flu. None of this is real science. This is science fiction. So those who caused the death of innocent people who've trusted in the system, those people maintain total control. There's no humility. There's no sense of, maybe maybe we should think again if we're losing this many patients, that maybe we should do it another way. Let's open our minds and open our eyes and look around. That's not happening and never has happened anywhere in medicine. As a result, we now know that upwards of 90 to 95% of all illnesses could be prevented. But where is there a film? Where is there a discussion by the Surgeon General's U.S. Public Health Service, the National Institutes of Aging and Health, where about preventing disease? Not a word. Nothing. To the contrary, the television networks, the executive networks, the celebrities who are on those networks, the pharmaceutical companies that advertise, the food companies that advertise, the sugar companies, the caffeine companies, all of the refined of the fast food giants giving you a meal that not a single thing in that meal uh, does not cause disease. Heterocyclic amines from the cooked meat, acrylamides in the bun, and yet they won't take credit for any of the disease they're causing. So you see, until a system breaks down, and it breaks down when we lose confidence in it, we don't want to redeem things, we don't want to reverse things in the sense of reforming, because no institution is going to allow itself to be reformed to the degree they lose power. So power, as uh, Lord Attlee said, it corrupts and absolute power, corrupts absolutely. They're not going to give up any power, so we've got to see now institutions completely losing legitimacy and the people withdrawing their support and when you withdraw your support it's like Richard Nixon being this powerful man one day and holding his arms up with a V sign on a helicopter taking him out to San Clemente, California because he has no power. What was the difference? People said we don't trust you we're not supporting you so we have to stop supporting the big Wikipedia, uh, Facebook, Google, New York Times, Rachel Maddow, Howard Stern, Jimmy We have to pull away from all of it, stop buying their products, stop listening to what they have to say. Your final thoughts on this, please.
1: I agree, and I'm so happy to hear you say that, because it's not enough that we just talk about the corruption. It is beyond time for us to take action to pull our support away from these institutions. And, you know... It's like right now we're having the conversation of, well, the whole construct is broken. How can we fix it within the paradigm of the broken construct? You know, these larger entities, the FDA, the CDC, Harvard, Johns Hopkins, Imperial College, like all of these gross institutions. And again, it goes back to like we've been indoctrinated to think that authority is something that lies outside of us and that we're just these stupid, pathetic, little disempowered ants who have to turn to these institutions to tell us what to do. Um, And that could not be farther from the truth. These larger institutions have no power. We're the ones with the power. The sooner we withdraw our consent, our allegiance, our attention from the nonsense that they're spewing, the sooner they'll fall apart Um, and the sooner we can come together to create something bigger, better, more life affirming.
0: You're right. Danny, thank you very much. And I'm hoping people will listen every Thursday following my show on PRN.live to Danny Katz and Danny Katz, by the way, her, her newest book is out there. Language of Betterarchy, B-E-T-T-E-R-A-R-C-H-Y. That's the new book. And, uh, She's going to be on at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on PRN with her new program. And I hope you all tune in to listen to it because it's really going to be a wonderful program. It's called Word, W-O-R-D, Up. Thank you, Danny. And thank you all for listening to the Progressive Commentary Hour. Have a nice day, everyone. Brother, brother, there's far too many of you dying. You know we